Hello and thank you for downloading this episode. I'm Tom Rowley, editor of Holland and Barrett's Healthy for Men magazine. And it's officially sex season for Healthy for Men with our special double episode. Today we speak with Love Island's Dr. Alex George about sexual health and the mental implications of reality TV. Look out for our next episode where we talk about sexual relationships with sex educator Alex Fox. Thank you for downloading and I hope you enjoy the episode. So welcome to the Healthy for Men podcast. Today we have Dr. Alex George, uh, star of Love Island, and of course, doctor, most importantly. So welcome, Alex. How thank are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks so much for having me on the show. You are extremely, extremely welcome. We've been very excited to have you. Um, so to start off with, Alex, can you give us a little bit of your, your background? Why did you become a doctor? So um, I'm actually from West Wales. Um, I grew up in a family that was completely not uh, medical at all. My dad is a retired policeman. Um, my mum works within the bank. But I, as I grew up, I kind of always loved science. And um, I loved kind of learning about the human body. And I always found kind of that side of things very interesting. And when I was kind of 12, 13, I started watching like City Hospital and those kind of shows on TV. And I thought, oh my gosh, isn't it so like exciting that you can use science and medicine to try and help and heal people. And I just found the whole thing so exciting. I think I was quite lucky because a lot of people, especially these days, it's very hard to find like guidance or clear like routes in life about where you want to go. And there's a lot of pressure on young people to make decisions early. I was lucky in the sense that I kind of knew what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't envy people, actually, in some ways that maybe are just trying to find their path and are told, you know, you need to know what you need to do, you know, you need to know what you want and what you want in life. But the answer isn't obvious. Like, that, that must be quite challenging. But I was very fortunate. I knew what I wanted to do. Um, I just got my head down and kind of worked towards it. Uh, went to Exeter Medical School um, and Plymouth, which I really enjoyed, and then ended up in London, working here in King's College Hospital first, as a you know as a junior, first year of my junior doctor years, uh, moving on to work in Lewisham Hospital and eventually settling in the A&E department. So that's where I continue to work now. Part wow, time. fantastic! So now working as a doctor uh, in the A&E department, do you get people? recognize you often and talk to you about Love Island more so than their uh, immediate uh, problems that they're having. Yeah, sometimes. I mean, I, to be honest, I, I always say this, I never applied to Love Island as a show. Um, they asked me through Instagram to come to an interview and, I, and the exec always says, the joke of it all is that throughout all the Love Island series, I was the one person that didn't want to go on the show that took quite a lot of coaxing because I, I didn't want to risk my career. I didn't want to mm. risk not being able to be professional in that capacity and people maybe recognise me and not being able to do my job. Um, I have been very fortunate, I think, that the public understand that when I'm in a and &E, I'm there to work and mm. I do say hello and things, but I am very much left to kind of get on with it, which is mm. quite good. I generally work in the resus department, so where the six patients are. Uh, which so that's are, resuscitation? Resuscitation, yeah. So generally patients who come in and maybe are so unwell that if you don't do anything in the next hour or so, their life's at risk. That's the kind of level of mm -hmm. illness that they have. I'm often in that kind of part of the department and yeah, you know, obviously patients are very much focusing on their health at that point. So mm -hmm. yeah, it, it's it's actually worked out okay. And mostly when people do talk to me, they say, you know, it's great to see you here in a &E, you know, working and things. It's all mm. very positive. Brilliant. So they approached you. Um, what was it about yourself that, that Love Island 
wanted on the show so much, do you think? I still have no idea. <laughs> I don't have any idea. Maybe the fact that, um, looking back, that I kind of it was there until almost the final. Maybe they knew what they were looking for. I don't really, I don't really know, to be honest. I think maybe it was some. I would. I think maybe they saw that I was someone who's quite open as a person. I'm quite, I think, um, sensitive and emotionally quite in tune. Mm-hmm. So I think they knew that I would kind of be someone that would have quite a journey on there. Mm-hmm. I, I suspect that's most of the reason. Um, I think that's yeah. right, and I think they wanted the love doctor as well, didn't they? <laughs> Clearly wanted the love doctor. I think. I think what they need, what they wanted to do is keep their bills down with healthcare on the island. Exactly, so having yes. me in there made it all a bit cheaper. Takes a few boxes yeah. for you, doesn't it? Um, so today, obviously, we're discussing intimate health and intimacy. Um, so, did your experience on Love Island did it change the way you perceive intimacy and and relationships at all? I think it was quite a shock. I mean, we all can relate, and I think the beauty of Love Island and why the show does so well is that even though the even though these are aspirational situations, in a sense, or extreme situations and blown up situations, they actually reflect many of the things we can all relate to in mm-hmm. life. So, from falling out with your best mate on the show over a boy, or kind of uh, fancying a girl who doesn't fancy you back, or having a blossoming relationship, it's all very relatable. Um, but it's just very extreme. So when I walked in and um, I wasn't picked by the girls at the start, obviously that in front of you know four or five million or, or however many saw it in the, on the first night of the airing of the show, you're well aware of that, and it it is a bit of a kick in the teeth. So it does. It was a bit of a hit, and you know throughout the time there, I definitely had probably one of the rougher journeys of all the Islanders. Um, although I had an incredible summer, mm-hmm. having said that, and I made friends for life. So to me, it was it was all worth it. It was a journey. And I learned a lot about myself. I learned that you do need to be, um, A, love yourself is the most important thing, to love yourself, not in a kind of um, arrogant way or whatever. It's about appreciating who you are, looking at your good points. Because often we we think of ourselves and we're we're quick to name our flaws and often as quick to name our strengths or Mm. what we have to offer the people, you know. And I learned, actually, I am who I am. Um, I'm actually quite proud of who I am. And if you... If you meet someone who appreciates that, then they're right for you. If they're not, then you're not right. It's not about being worthy or not worthy. That's brilliant. That's fantastic. Because um, like you say, a lot of people, they do struggle to concentrate on their strengths. And the fact that you've been through that journey and it's allowed you to appreciate your strengths more, um, you know, that's that's fantastic. I mean, did, when you were in the on the island, did you get anxious at all about all these cameras being on you all the time um, and just constantly being watched and constantly being judged by other people in on the island and and, and an audience? Yeah. I think um, I found certain points, there were certain points where I definitely felt very aware that the camera's there. Say, for example, walking in, I was like, all my friends, everyone who's ever known me in my life will be watching this realistically. You know, I'm a, uh, you know from a small town in West Wales, the whole of Carmarthen should be watching it. I'm, imagine quite a bit of Wales a lot of people, you know, in, in hospitals across the country, whether they admit it or not, will probably have a little look because, you know, it is unusual to have, you know, a, a medical person on a show like this. And yeah, being aware that things weren't going well in front of all those people definitely caused a bit of a anxiety. I, I actually said, you know, when I'm in recess, my heart rate's probably going 80 beats per minute. But when I walked in and things went badly, it was doing about 160 beats per minute. So being out of your comfort zone in a stressful situation, yeah, it can yeah, definitely cause some, some anxiety. Wow. So did, did you, did you do- watch the first second? Did you watch that last series? I, I didn't watch the whole season. Yeah. No. Did you uh, see? Did you see the first one when I walked in? I didn't. No. You didn't. You, if you want to see what, how, if you ever think, oh my gosh, I don't want to be like part in front of a girl or how embarrassed I must be, watch that. And you'll, <laughs> do you know what? You'll put everything all in perspective. You're like, do you know what? Life's not so bad. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, I'll do that. Thank you for that, because I might need that now, to be honest. Um, so is, did you have a way of dealing with that, um, that feeling of pressure and, and, and anxiety? It was really tough, and particularly in the first few days. And I was in an alien environment without my usual um, kind of safety nets, if you like, like your mm. new friends and your family, the ability to discuss things that may be troubling you. Uh, so I had to kind of settle myself in my head and go, right, come on, Alex. You, you've been, you, you're tougher than that. You can do this kind of thing. You're going to be all right. Pull yourself together. Um, and I quickly made bonds with people around me. And actually, it's amazing how even if you're thrown into a group of people that you wouldn't normally necessarily expect to find connections, you will find areas that you kind of find similarities or things that you like in them or you didn't realize that they may offer, mm -hmm. you know. So um, I was lucky to make good friends and actually that really helped because then you can offload, you can talk about how you're feeling, you find out actually they're feeling the same way. So it did help, it did help. It, it just took a bit of time. Yeah, yeah. So you um afterwards um when you you came off the island, uh you had counselling, um and you spoke openly about how um you know you'd, you'd recommend counselling for. Do you think it's 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 a necessity for people who who go on to um these um these shows that they should have counselling afterwards? I mean, I say I say this to people because um and sometimes I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Sometimes people are kind of like, well, you, you went on a show like that, you must have realised that it was going to be quite a change or that you're going to be recognised. And what I try and explain to people is that until you've been in those shoes and you've done it, you, you don't really know what it is. You're just imagining what it means to be, uh, you know, known or in the public eye. Mm. In reality, what the shock is that you can't ever put it down. So whenever you leave the house, whatever you're doing, if you're having a bad day, if you're having the worst day ever, you can have someone stopping you and talking to you and you need to be on that kind of perfect form all the time. And that's what it's kind of like. You're almost trying to show this kind of perfectly glossed mm -hmm. uh, image all the time. And that can be really challenging, and especially at the start as you come off the show. And it's an aspirational show. Everyone expects you to be doing running around 100 miles an hour, jetting off around the world. And that's not the reality of life. And it's not the reality of how I wanted to live my life either. I was very keen to go back to A&E and have some aspects that were more normal. So I uh, asked ITV to have some counselling to go, look, it has been a big change. I want to talk about some of the things I've experienced, A, um, in terms of personally on the show because of some of the challenges I faced, you know, in the relationships and things, and also talk about some of the changes that have happened on the outside and how maybe I can kind of learn to manage and cope with certain things. And I found it very helpful. Um, I spoke with ITV a lot after the show, particularly with regards to, you know, Mike and Sophie, uh, sadly having lost their lives mm -hmm. um, to suicide. Um, and I spoke to them and said, look, you know, obviously these are tragedies and they're very sad, you know, events to have happened. We need to try and look at certain things and what we can do. And one of the things we talked about was having uh, counselling sessions for all. Mm -hmm. um, because particularly, you know, studies show, I mean, Samaritans um, did a recent survey that two in five men, even if they're desperate for help, will never, ever ask for it. So my concerns were that actually I was quite open and said, I want some help, but... A lot of guys out there, you know, I'm stereotyping, right? The kind of macho men may not actually be as open and say, do you know what? I'm actually struggling. I'm maybe not living the perfect Instagram life. Absolutely. I'm putting them in front of a trained professional in a way that's almost standardized. I, you're here um, seeing a counselor, but so is everyone on Love Island. Put them in a position where they may well open up more. Absolutely. And, and being able to catch things early 
you know, can make all the difference. Study shows and, you know, evidence shows that if we can intervene at the right points, you know, even the most severe depression mm. or most difficult uh, situations with regards to mental health can be turned around and, and, and things can be done to help. So it's, it's always a shame when, when, when someone loses some of their life to, to suicide because there is a potential chance that they could have been saved. Exactly. Absolutely. So we need to normalise that conversation, don't we? Normalise counselling and psychotherapy. So, And I think you're right. If, if it was provided for everyone on Love Island, then everyone would just have it, wouldn't they? And it might solve a problem that they never knew they mm. had. Because now it's a case that um, when you come off the show, you'll have a minimum of eight counselling sessions, all, all of the Islanders will from this, will from this wow, series, okay. um, which is one of the things we talked about. Uh, they also recorded, I think it was which I think is quite helpful. When I came off the show, I had no idea what an agent was. I had no. I, I, all I knew was the NHS and training to be an A&E doctor. I had absolutely no idea of media whatsoever at all. I had an Instagram account with 200 followers uh, before the show. So I was quite clueless. And I think the bit of guidance when you come off can make a big difference. So with social media, you know, simple things like how to find a manager, what to look mm -hmm. for, how to kind of settle in the first few weeks. And that's something that they've incorporated together with um, some recorded footage of myself and some of the islanders giving tips wow. and hints about like, look, if I was coming off the show again, what would I like to know? What, what would have been useful mm -hmm. to have told Alex a year ago? And that's what we tried to do. And hopefully that has made a difference or hopefully it will make a difference. That's incredible. That's really good. Fantastic work that you're doing there. Um, so how are you now? I'm good. I'm good. I'm I'm busier than I've ever been, mm -hmm. but I'm enjoying it. Sometimes, I, I was saying to you earlier, I feel like I'm spinning plates a little bit. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I've got my YouTube, my, my podcast, newsletter. I'm still very much working in A&E uh, and, uh, and also supporting other uh, projects like with the Samaritans. I'm training for a cycle in India for Teens Unite uh, fighting against cancer. Um, so it's, I do feel a little bit sometimes like I'm juggling and finding downtime can be difficult. But, yeah, you're uh, not burning out, are you? I hope not. I hope not. I do have to <laughs> kind of stop sometimes quite literally and go, I mean, I've got a girlfriend, Amelia, and she's like, right, just mm. put the phone down now and just stop for a couple of hours because I can sometimes just work from seven in the morning till like midnight and get up and just carry on again the next day without ever actually have stopped stop properly. Which well, you look bad. well and you seem well, well so you. you seem to be... <laughs> I look well, so I'll take that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I'm, you know, I am actually doing good. I'm very happy and I'm enjoying it. Like I actually really enjoy working hard and mm -hmm. I think I'm quite able to recognise when I need to stop as well. Like right. I've learned to go, right, I need a weekend where I just do nothing. Mm -hmm. So I'm quite aware of that. That's good. That's good, yes. You do need that now and then to recuperate, do a bit of mindfulness, a bit of meditation, Bring yourself back down to earth. Do you Absolutely. do you do practice mindfulness? Do you? I do. Um, I do. I went through um, a long stage of of meditating regularly. I haven't done that recently, um, which I think has been to my detriment. Mm. I feel a lot more stressed than I, than I was when I was practicing mm. meditation. How do you? What would you do when you meditate? How did you do it? Um, see, I, I actually had this um, a device called Muse, mm -hmm. uh, which I was trying out for um, Healthy for Men. And it's a device that you attach, it's like a headband, mm -hmm. and it measures your brain waves, yeah. uh, the, the um, activity going on in your brain. And you have, you have an app, and the app will tell you how well you're meditating. So your body movements, your brain activity, and your breathing. Um, so if you, if you start thinking negative thoughts or, or too much, there's too much activity in your brain, you'll start to hear a, a, a thunderstorm in your headphones and it'll come in. Wow, it's quite extreme. <laughs> it is, yeah. But it'll be it'll be quite faint. But then the more like you're moving or, or, or thinking too much, then it'll get more and more extreme. When that um when those thoughts start to die down, 
um, bird song will start coming in. So if you're if you're meditating peacefully, you hear bird song, and it's a really good way of controlling your meditation. So I was doing that for quite a while, um, and it did really help me. It, it did help me get better at meditating. I felt mm. I felt much more at peace, and I felt like my sessions were were quite That's productive. What's well, quite hard with um, meditating, and certainly when you start doing, or at least I found, is that you are very hypercritical of your med- meditating or your successfulness. You're going, oh my gosh, I should be in like zen and complete peace and quiet. But actually, to get there, you have to go through the first bit, which is the cloud, which is the cloud and the kind of firing of thoughts. And it's just learning to. What I found hard was learning to recognise they're there and then allow them to pass and not energise them. Exactly. Yeah. But it takes a bit of practice, doesn't it? But I, I, I'm, I'm again the same as you. I haven't done as much as I should be at the moment but when you get back into it you get really good and actually when you enter that really quiet space you almost get a bit of euphoria with it mm-hmm. don't you absolutely you do um, nice as long as you don't have that pressure as you said that, yeah. that sort of pressure you put on yourself of I need to be a Buddhist monk right now and yeah. be completely free of thoughts and you know um, you shouldn't you, you should just go with the thoughts take them um, as they come and once they leave then hopefully you'll be in a more sort of relaxed state have but, you read Eckhart Tolle The Power of Now um, I have, yes. So good, isn't it? It is really fantastic. Yeah, that changed my life, that book, actually. Yeah? And yeah? I would say so, yeah. I would say so. Yeah. I, I think my, I had a very kind of negative mindset, I think. This mm. is years ago. I was in med school and I read it. But I read that book and I would generally say it changed, changed my life. Yeah. I think, yeah. I, I started succeeding in, 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 in aspects of my life and I'm not talking about like success necessarily academically, but in terms of happiness and all that and self-development that I was, wasn't doing before. So anyone who hasn't read it should definitely read The Power of Now. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I know a lot of people who would really benefit from reading The Power of Now, who don't live in the moment, um, who obsess about the future and the past. And we all do it now and then, we all don't, do we? It, don't but, we? Um, it's about trying to regulate that, isn't mm. it? And, and having those moments where you're you're there and you're focused and, and you're, you're present. Um, so yes, Eckhart Tolle, Power of Now, strong recommendation. Um, so let's talk a little bit now about the practical side mm-hmm. of intimate health. Um, so um, to open up the discussion, really, how do you look after your penis? How do you look after your penis? <laughs> <laughs> well, do look after it. It is important. Um, the first thing, actually, to mention here, and I think this will be, it might be a bit of a surprise, men often overwash down below, mm-hmm. okay? We should really, when we're going for a shower, just be using water uh, to clean around your penis and the foreskin, around your testicles, uh, maybe with a tiniest light, lightest bit of soap. But often what we find is men go, oh my gosh, I need to have it like specially clean, especially if you've got like a mm-hmm. special date coming up that night and use loads of different shower gels and products on there, sometimes even spraying fragrances on there after they've had a shower. And there's nothing worse for that skin than doing that. Women actually are much better at looking after their kind of genitals and private parts than than men often. And I do, and I have seen in the past, uh, when I used to work in sexual health clinics, men commonly coming in with essentially dry skin. They thought they had infections, but they had dry, sore and raw skin because they've been overwashing. So the first thing is, um, just be careful to use, you know, water. Don't put light fragrances down there. Secondly, um, uh, from a sexual point of view, making sure you have a, a regular STI checkup is very important. Men often ask, like, how often should I get checked up? Like, do I just go and have symptoms? I would, I would advise that every time you have a new partner that you haven't used uh, barrier contraceptives, i.e. condoms with, you should be having a sexual health screen. Because we know that around half of all men who have chlamydia, and there's around one in, one in 10, 16 to 25-year-olds walking around the UK with it right now, 
uh, around half to 60% of them won't have any symptoms whatsoever mm. of having the infection, uh, which is quite scary if you think that chlamydia itself can go on to cause infertility in both men and, and women if left untreated. So, yeah, first thing is don't clean too much. Second, um, get yourself checked out regularly. Those would be my, I think, two top tips to, to okay. keeping, keeping safe in that way. Fantastic. So keep it as simple, really. Don't spray any alcohol-laden... Yeah. Rubbish on there, it will smell fine, just wash it with Avoiding water. Avoiding all the kind of like cleaning and gentle cleaning products, just they're all kind of full of chemicals. Mm -hmm. You don't need it at all. Your body actually does look after yourself quite well. Um, using water and, as I say, just a little bit of soap maybe. Mm -hmm. But just keep an eye on it. If you are getting dry skin, if it's getting irritated, then just cut it out. <clears throat> One of the worst things actually is having baths too much. Because in baths we pour loads of you know bubble bath in there and there's nothing worse for, for those parts than, than that. So often actually... I, the first thing I ask people with these problems is, you know, of dry skin or whatever, is, you know, do you actually have baths? If you do, just stop for a while, have a break, have a shower and avoid it because you're just literally soaking yourself in these chemicals. Mm. Are there any serious problems that men can get from overwashing? Or I, I mean, I've actually seen some really bad cases where um, I had one chap actually came in a few years ago and he came in, he honestly could hardly walk, he looked really, really uncomfortable, sat down and was like, gosh, you're, what's happened kind of thing, he said, look, I think I've got really, really bad infection and I, and I said, well, how did it all start, like, tell me about the beginning and he said at the start he had a bit of flakiness around his skin and he thought he had an infection, this is around the foreskin now, um, so he was washing it more and more and more using um, washing cleaning products like shower gels and things like that and then it got to a point where it was getting worse and it was all flaky and he thought mm. it was like really infected and he actually used um, a Brillo pad to try and scrub some of this Blimey. stuff off his foreskin That's making me and when he came in and I, had, I said look let's have a look it was honestly in quite a state um, mm. and I had to say to him look to be honest with you this is all because of using clean you know shower gels and mm. other products that, that this has happened and he was actually astounded he thought there was some terrible infection all he needed to do in the end was actually use moisturizer uh, and definitely avoid any kind of uh, brillo pads and, mm. and, and, and another uh, washing and showering products so it yeah it can cause quite a problem and it's actually much more common than people think so obviously the 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 effects of that are having some sort of terrible skin condition. Can can you have, um, does it affect your fertility at all? Or? No, it shouldn't affect your fertility. It's much more kind of skin-related mm. issues. The fertility side of things is much more uh, concerned with regards to um, uh, STIs. Mm. If we're on about kind of um, self-care and checking yourself, the other thing I think is important to m mention is that you should be regularly checking your testicles as well. Mm. Um, I think a lot of men would admit they don't do that very often. Right, so how do we do that? So you should do it, so I would say doing it at least once a month is good. More regularly the better because really, you learn to know what your testicles feel like. So mm. try and do it at least once a month if you can, you know, every week is, is brilliant. Um, the advice is to do it in the shower, in a warm shower because it helps relax uh, your testicles and your scrotum and it, may, it makes it much easier to actually examine your testicles. It's difficult to say over a, obviously a podcast but what you do is get your thumb and your index finger and you should use and you put a testicle in between the two of these and you essentially roll the testicle in between your thumb and index finger to feel the kind of smooth edges. At the top of the testicle, you'll feel a little kind of lump, which is the epididymis. So it's a little kind of um, uh, couple of tubes at the top there, which you can feel. And that's perfectly normal, but you, most of the testicles should be nice and smooth. What you're looking for is for any kind of bulges on there or any lumps or bumps that, mm. that, that, that feel like they come out from the testicle. Um, and just have a, have a general feel of the testicle one at a time.
time to have a good look at that. Also notice if there's any kind of lumps or bumps in the scrotum in itself aside mm. from the testicle. Um, if you do that regularly, you will know what uh, what feels normal to you. And if you mm. think things have changed, if you feel the testicles getting larger or if you feel that um, there's any swelling or you've got any pain when you examine it, just get it checked out. Mm. There's nothing to be embarrassed about. It'll take a doctor a matter of a minute or so to have a look at it and reassure you or you know send you for further tests if you need it. So please do check regularly. So there is a bit of a, um, a problem with men getting checked out, isn't there? Men talking, men going to see a doctor, um, you know, so especially going to see a doctor who's going to be very intimate with you um, and perhaps uh, look at your genitals or look at your prostate. Um, so, you know, is, is there a way that men can be a little bit more, um, do they have their anxiety quelled about these things? I think we're very British in this way. I mean, if you go to Europe, even France, no one would, no, no men wouldn't worry about going to have the prostate mm. examined or the testicles checked. It's very, very British, and it's actually really sad because I've seen, and I can generally say I've seen several, um, not even several. I've seen quite a lot of men who have come in with very, very serious health conditions that mm. could have been possibly reversed or treated much earlier if they'd have presented at the time. I remember a chap who came in uh, who was essentially having a crushing heart attack. Mm who'd had chest pain for four days. His wife had been telling him every day, please go in, you don't look well, please go in, you don't look well. And he's waited four days before presenting to us with quite severe damage from his heart attack that I think quite likely could have been avoided had he presented earlier. So in some ways, you have to be very open and say, look, this is your health. You know, it's so important to, to kind of, uh, you know, really focus on that and look after yourself because the consequences can be there. At the end of the day, we're all, you know, all the doctors and nurses you'll see, we're healthcare professionals. We are doing the job. You know, I've done loads and loads of prostate examinations. Um, it's not something I would bat an eyelid at doing. So I'd hope that any uh, any man or gentleman that would come in would would not be not would not be worried. Mm -hmm. It's a confidential environment. It's a professional environment, and we're here to look after you. So that's the most important thing in all this. So how often should men get a full MOT checkup? It depends on a lot of factors and what you're what you're kind of looking for. Um, particularly over the age of forty, we say that men should be going for regular blood uh, pressure checkups and 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 certainly be having more MOTs in general. So seeing the GP and actually talking to GP is a good starting point because you say, look, you know, how often should I come and see you? They might say, well, actually, you've got this health condition and this health condition. Come and see me every. X amount of months. Other people might say, well, look, we've done a full checkup. You look really great. I'll see you next year. Mm -hmm. And that is a problem. The most important thing for me, I think, is that recognizing that there's something not quite right or that you've, you've found something that's different. If it's to do with, um, you know, water work, sometimes men will go, well, actually, I'm not able to pass urine as much. And they leave it a very long time mm -hmm. before they go and see the doctor. We do an examination and find that the prostate's enlarged quite common in older men and often it's to do, to do with benign reasons and can be treated you know without too much difficulty um but sometimes we do see people who may it's men who uh, are only unable to pee and actually wait to the point where they cannot pass urine they're mm. in retention with bladders that are absolutely massive and we have to pass catheters because they don't want to say anything so it, it's it's about noticing something's different and going early because as with anything in life tackling problems early often makes it much easier absolutely else it will just get worse it gets worse and and actually you know leaving it later then not that it not that it's embarrassing at all having a catheter done but if you are worried about you know intimate things like that actually that's then 
maybe more extreme than it would have been right at the start. So, yeah, it's we have to we have to kind of tackle this with men. We we know we're quite bad with it, quite bad with uh, physical health and even worse with mental health. We're not mm. good at opening up as a whole. Women are much better, and the statistics back that up. Uh, we do need to just be better at opening up and saying, mm. "I've got a problem. I'm going to see my doctor. I'm going to ask for help." Absolutely. Have you ever been approached by men who um, are struggling with erection issues, libido issues? Yes. Do you know, most commonly these issues come up when I'm seeing them for a completely different issue. So I could be seeing someone with um, an A&E who's got a chest infection and I'm going through the medication list and their past medical history and I ask them, you know, is there anything else, any other problems as I always do because I know that often there are other things that might come up and, and they say, well, actually, yeah, I'm struggling with this. But it will very, very rarely be the reason that they've presented to see the doctor. And this, is, I think, is because people feel embarrassed. You know, as a man, you know, I, I shouldn't have any problems with my libido. I shouldn't have any problems with my erection. But actually, it's very, very common. There's lots of different causes to it. And lots of those causes are very treatable. So, again, just come and let us know because we want to help. It's nothing to be embarrassed about regardless of your age. I've spoken to men who are well into their 70s who say that they've got issues of erectile dysfunction mm. and we tackle the issue and we, we, we find find a treatment that helps. So what are some of the um, the causes? I know it uh, could be anything, can't it? Um, but what are the common causes of, of erectile dysfunction? So this can depend on age. Um, Definitely psychological is one of them. So um, sometimes we can kind of get ourselves into a rut and worrying about the issue makes it worse, particularly actually if you're stressed at the time, if you're working long hours, you're not rested, um, if your diet's not 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 healthy and balanced, all of those things can kind of contribute as one side. There can be some medical underlying causes. Um, diabetes is, is one of those. It's one of the most common mm -hmm. uh, causes. Blood pressure also too. So actually, if you're saying I've got an issue with erectile dysfunction, there could be a, an underlying health problem that we need to actually tackle, which may have other consequences to other parts of your body. So coming forward and saying I have this problem could actually make a big difference to your overall health. Um, so yeah, it's just it, there's lots of different causes. I say most of them are treatable, and yeah, don't be embarrassed about it. There's nothing to be ashamed about. We're all on this planet. Well, most a lot of us are having sex, mm -hmm. um, and it's completely natural. Absolutely, we should stop being so British about. Yeah, it, we are we? too British. I mean, we are too British sometimes. You know, the French. You know, we worry about using suppositories here, so using tablets uh, up the back passage, and you know, they they would opt for that in, in mm -hmm. France. They're not worried at all because actually, in a lot of ways, some of the medication is absorbed better rectally than they are orally. Absolutely, that's fantastic advice. Um, stop being so British. Talk about your problems. Yeah. Um, come see. Don't be embarrassed. Come see Dr. Alex George. Yeah. Not all at once because it's too much. Everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Only working part-time, so not too much. <laughs> um, so talk a little bit about relationships. Um, you're obviously in a relationship now. Um, you had a lot of experience, quite a strange experience in a completely new synthetic world um, of, of love and relationships and intimacy. Um, do you have any advice on, on how to maintain a positive, a healthy relationship? Within a relationship itself? Yeah, within a relationship itself. I think talking is the most important thing in a relationship, but talking in the right way. Sometimes we end up having things that are bothering us about the other person, your partner, mm -hmm. and we talk about it in completely wrong, wrong way and at the wrong time. So classic would be come home from a, 
uh, a meal, you've had a couple of glasses of wine each. Uh, it's annoyed you maybe earlier on the day that she's criticised something you've done and then you broach that topic just before you go to bed. You're both tired, you've had a couple of wines and it turns into a big argument, but the problem mm. wasn't very big in the first place. Communicating in the right way at the right time, I think, is the key to a healthy relationship. So um, particularly when it comes to emotive issues. So if you're having problems maybe in the bedroom um, where you don't feel like you're aligning, talking about the issue in the bedroom is probably the worst thing you can do. So trying to have um, a time and a place. For example, a good way I've heard of it before is talk about problems in a place you wouldn't expect to talk about them. For example, if you're having issues, and actually this Alex Fox gave me this tip. Mm. Um, not tip for me, obviously. <laughs> no. But... Um, so, for example, like if you're having problems in the bedroom, having a chat about it in a coffee shop, you know, over breakfast makes mm. it very much more and it almost removes the emotion in that situation. Because actually emotion sometimes clouds, clouds our judgment, right? We react in certain ways. We get angry. We Absolutely. say things we don't mean. So putting ourselves in the right circumstance, talking about it in a more of a matter of fact, almost like a business way. It sounds mm. sounds like a weird concept. Going, well, look, I think this is the problem. What mm. do you think is the problem? What is the solution? Right, we agree with this plan of action. Yeah, let's do it. And I found I've, I've actually tried to start doing that and it makes a big difference because this irrational, these irrational conversations mm. after three or four pints of beer never end well today. You wake up the next day and think, oh gosh, what have I done? Exactly, yeah. yeah. Communication is key. Absolutely. Um, so that's fantastic advice. And as far as developing a healthy sexual relationship, do you have any advice in that regard? How often should we be having sex? Do you know, this, this is a difficult question because we're all, we are all individuals and different mm -hmm. um, and that's within men and within women that's not this isn't you know versus I think mm -hmm. we're all different and each person wants to have more or less sex it's quite difficult when you have someone who wants to have a lot more sex than the other person uh, again I think you have to actually find then a balanced ground like, is there a balance to be found is there is there um, well actually I'm happy with this or, or whatever it's trying to find that kind of agreement between mm -hmm. you which can be actually quite difficult it can be quite difficult, but again, it's, it's talking about it and finding yeah. out what the other person wants. Why do they want to have more sex or less sex? Is it is it actually because of insecurities that sex makes them feel more confident, more wanted? Mm. Is it actually what they actually really want? Is it in, is it affection? Is that what they're really looking for? So trying to find those deep-rooted things and, and trying to find a balance. And in reality, sometimes things can't always be worked out. We are different and and sometimes we do try to force things that maybe won't work, but mm. there's only one way you can find out, and that's by talking about it. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I mean, we, we I suppose we presume if someone wants to have sex all the time that they're um, that they're just like some sort of nymphomaniac, or they're they just have got a really high sex drive. But I suppose examining what is actually going on in your relationship could be really fueling that, and, and maybe it is a lack of affection, maybe it is a because, um, I mean, some people do just have a high sex drive. But, for example, someone mm. who had a relationship in the past, maybe they were cheated on and they felt they weren't fancy, they now mm. want a lot more affection as a form of reassurance. Mm. Um, and the person who doesn't want to have as much sex in that relationship, it's maybe not because they're, um, they're not attracted to the other person. They're actually just quite comfortable yeah. in the relationship. They're comfortable with the amount of affection that they're having. Uh, it's just an interesting, like balance to find I think if someone actually does just want to have a lot more sex and the other mm. person doesn't want to I think that does become challenging that can put a lot of strain yeah. and in some cases it just doesn't work you know it's not always a solution and that's life and I think that's natural you know mm. we we are not all compatible in that way absolutely yeah and I completely agree um, so find someone with a similar libido to you I suppose is, is 
Yeah, or at advice. least that you can find a ba- or find a balance because it's not. Of course, it's not all about sex, and sometimes, you know, you other parts of the relationship are so strong that you, you that's what you, why you're together that you lift each other, mm-hmm. and you find a balance in the bedroom, and then you're happy with that. But if that can't be found, sometimes you do have to, yeah, um, find someone else <laughs> <laughs> that will accept it. <laughs> uh, well, Alex, thank you so much for coming in and speaking with us today. Um, it's been fascinating. Um, I've learned a lot personally. Um, and yeah, we look forward to hopefully seeing you again at some point and all the best in your incredible career in the NHS. Um, do we expect to see you in any more uh, reality TV shows in the future? Um, never say never. I don't think you're going to be seeing me in another dating show. Obviously, I've got a girlfriend and uh, I've done enough dating <laughs> shows, I think, for a lifetime. Um, but, Wouldn't uh, go down well, would it, though? Uh, yeah, no, I don't think it go down well. Plenty of uh, kind of medical stuff going on uh, with the TV things at the moment, exciting things coming very soon. And, of course, my podcast, which is starting on Thursday. So please have a listen. Fantastic. It's, the, um, it's called The Waiting Room. Waiting Room. Brilliant. And there's nine episodes? There's going to be nine episodes, yet yeah, running uh, every Thursday uh, for nine weeks. So, yeah, have a listen. Brilliant. Who's kicking off on the first episode? So we've got the fantastic Alex Fox, who's one of your guests as well. Um, and we're going to be talking about um, sexual relationships, um, a little bit about consent, and also about how to communicate in mm. the bedroom. She is an absolute uh, expert and is actually really funny and entertaining at the same time. So have a listen. I think it was a great episode, and I hope you'll enjoy. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Alex. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Alex George. For part two of our sex season, we speak with journalist and sex educator Alex Fox. Alex has been the news editor for Bizarre magazine. She hosts her own Radio 1 podcast, Unexpected Fluids, and she's also a script advisor for the hit Netflix show, Sex Education. Thank you for listening and see you next time.